Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. Exciting news. This is a podcast all about Margaret Beaufort and Henry VII. Yes, it's the one you've all been waiting for. It's the repeat of the excellent Nicola Tallis's podcast that we did more than a year ago now. We bring you the best from the History Archive every week, and this is one of them. Margaret Beaufort, mother of Henry VII. This week in 1485, Henry VII was crowned King of England. It was the climax of a rather unexpected journey and a journey shaped very much by the guiding hand of his mother. Margaret Beaufort is truly the Tudor matriarch. Nicola Tallis is a brilliant historian, and she was it was great to have her on the podcast. We bring you these once a week because the whole of the History Archive is now not available on iTunes or wherever you get your pods. It is only available on historyhit.tv. It's our new digital history channel. We've got audio on there. We've got video on there. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free, and then you get a second month for just £1 euro or dollar. So after checking out this podcast, learning all about the beginnings of the Tudor dynasty, you should head over and become a subscriber. Be great to have you there. In the meantime, enjoy this chat with Nicola Tallis. This is the woman. She's not the Tudor matriarch. She is the woman from whom all our subsequent royals have been descended. Yeah, she absolutely is. And I think that's quite often forgotten. So... I'm really pleased that you highlighted that straight away. Who is who was she in? What, where what in the kind of Plantagenet family of her birth? So who where did she? You know, was she anywhere near the throne? Yeah, she was, but nobody would have considered her as a potential contender for the throne. Um, the key point with Margaret and her lineage was that she was a great granddaughter of John of Gaunt, the third surviving son of Edward III, and so that was where her royal blood stemmed from. Same as Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fifth. Yes. So, yeah. But um, the key factor with Margaret was that she came from the illegitimate Beaufort line oh. because John of Gaunt had, um, as, as most of us know, had a mistress, Catherine Swinford, and it was by her that he had four children, um, the Beauforts, and John Beaufort, the eldest, was Margaret Beaufort's grandfather. Now, at the time of their birth, all of these children were rendered illegitimate. But John of Gaunt did later marry Catherine Swinford and the Beauforts were legitimated legally. But it was still a real bone of contention and lots of people regarded them as bastard stock. Right. Well, OK, good. So then Mar- tell me about Margaret's childhood. Well, as far as we know, she had a relatively happy childhood, uh, even though it was tinged with tragedy, because she was just a few days shy of her first birthday when her father died, probably 
at his own hand because he'd been engaged in this dismal French campaign as part of the Hundred Years' War and it had all gone badly wrong and ended in his disgrace and some contemporary chroniclers suggest that he ended his own life um, as I say, just a few days short of Margaret's first birthday. So she would never have known him. She was raised primarily by her mother, Margaret Beecham, in the Bedfordshire and Northamptonshire countryside, Bletsoe Castle and Maxi Castle. And she was surrounded by her half-siblings because her mother had had five children, five surviving children prior to Margaret's birth. Um, and she subsequently, her mother remarried a man called Lionel Wells, by whom she had another child. So Margaret was very much surrounded by this youthful hub of energy. And she was really, really close to her half siblings in later life. So it all suggests that she was raised in a happy and quite secure environment. And does do, do the War of the Roses, what, what say to the War of the Roses start making themselves apparent in this happy family life? For Margaret, the Wars of the Roses don't really have any impact on her until she turns 13, by which time she's married for the second time to Edmund Tudor. And he was more than a decade older than Margaret. He was in his mid-twenties. Can I stop you? So she was yeah. married before 13? Yeah, she was. So she was married... It was, a, it was a marriage of words only. She was betrothed when she was about six years old and underwent some kind of marriage ceremony with the heir of the Duke of Suffolk, um, John de la Paul. And, uh, yeah, they underwent some kind of marriage ceremony of words only that was later dissolved. So she never classified de la Paul as one of her husbands. She counted Edmund Tudor as her first husband. But, yeah, quite remarkable. And at age, uh, married at age 13? Married at the age of... Well, she was actually married to Edmund Tudor at the age of 12 and pregnant at 13. Wow. Yeah. And he would have been in his 20s? He was in his 20s. Who are these Tudors then? So the Tudors, they were the half-brothers of Henry VI. And um, they come into being because uh, Catherine of Valois, who was the wife of Henry V, when Henry V died, she became engaged in this dalliance with a Welsh squire named Owen Tudor. Some say that they were married, but there's no evidence to prove it either way. Um, but Edmund Tudor was one of the children of the alliance, if you like, and, yeah, half-brother of Henry VI and very, very close to the throne. Um, acknowledged? Acknowledged as the king's half-brother, yes. Yeah, absolutely, and treated very, very well by him and was very close to him. And that is why Henry VI arranged for Edmund to be married to... Um, to Margaret, who was a wealthy heiress as a result of her father's death. Okay, so we've got and, and so they so they are very much they're, they're very much of on Henry the um, side in in the in this civil war that's yeah. brewing. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so Margaret's family and the Tudors are all die-hard Lancastrians who are all extremely steadfastly unshakably loyal and devoted to Henry VI and for Margaret she would continue to be loyal to Henry VI right until um, the point of his death even though at some point she did you know because of the the shaky times she had to mask this allegiance quite carefully on occasion. So she's 13 years old yeah she's having a baby yeah 
Is that unusual? It, in this period? Or? Well, it was unusual, yes, because even though the church declared that 12 was the age at which a girl could legally cohabit with her husband and 14 was prescribed for boys, it still was unbelievably young. And many of um, Margaret's contemporaries often chose to wait for a while before they consummated their unions. But Edmund Tudor, it seems, was so eager to secure a an interest in Margaret's lands and her inheritance through consummation and the production of an heir that he just wasn't prepared to wait and so, yeah, Margaret immediately, or almost immediately after the marriage, becomes pregnant. That's, yeah, that's extraordinary. And you chart in the book that the delivery, apart from the, well, we we, we don't know, but we can imagine that was potentially an extraordinarily traumatic event, uh, but the, the birth would be just as traumatic. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that it nearly cost Margaret and her child their lives. And certainly it made its mark on her psychologically and possibly physically as well. We don't know for sure, of course, 500 years later, what the probable or possible physical implications were. But certainly it really sort of traumatised her and, and had a huge effect on her um, on her mindset. Did you, you suggest, though, that it made her very close to her son? Yeah, absolutely. It did. We know that from the moment of Henry's birth... Um, that this extraordinarily deep bond was forged between mother and son. And I really feel like from that moment when Margaret became a mother, it really became an integral part of her identity and it really shaped every decision that she made in the future. And, you know, we can see this because later in life, when Henry VII, her son, becomes King of England, Margaret immediately, in an effort to identify herself with him begins referring to herself as my lady the king's mother um so big spoiler alert there dude hold on a second sorry. <laughs> no, no, so okay so we've got so interesting quite i didn't really realize that so henry so so this young henry Tudor's baby has now got the blood of the valois in his in his veins the kings yeah. and queens of france the royal line of france mm. uh and also the blood of john of gaunt through his mother and so the plantagenet okay yes. got it yeah. um there's no suggestion at this point that Henry Tudor is destined for anything other than just a, being a wealthy magnate. That's exactly it. I mean, at this point, nobody would ever have considered the idea of having Henry Tudor as King of England because, you know, at that time, first and foremost, um, uh, of course, Henry VI was on the throne and he also had an heir, a male heir at this point. So nobody would have given Henry a, a thought he was only important, really, in Margaret's own eyes. Things would change, though, wouldn't they? Tell me, how does this little teen then, the very young teenage mother and her, her little baby, how do they navigate through the next few years of upheaval? Um, well, Margaret, um, immediately, as I said, as soon as she becomes a mother, it really begins to change her outlook on life because suddenly there's another life other than her own to consider. And it's really interesting because even though she is 13 at this point and um, it's important, I should have said, that her husband died just a couple of months before Henry Tudor's birth. He died of the plague. And uh, this left Margaret alone and incredibly vulnerable. She was under the protection of her brother-in-law, Jasper Tudor, at Pembroke Castle, which was where Henry Tudor was born. 
But she realised that she needed another powerful protector in order to safeguard her own interests and those of her infant son. So what's really interesting is that despite her age, she was so eager to avoid another husband who wasn't of her own choosing being thrust upon her that she actually began her own marriage negotiations for a third husband. And um, she, her choice fell upon Henry Stafford, who was the second son of the Duke of Buckingham, who was another nobleman who was closely allied with Henry VI. And um, we know that she, she married him in um, 1458. She probably left Henry Tudor behind under the custodianship of her brother-in-law, Jasper Tudor. So it was probably in Jasper's care that Henry was raised for the first few years of her life. So she didn't really see that much of him during that time. And that must have been a real emotional tug for her. Um, it, we don't really know why why she wouldn't have taken him with her, but um, but whatever the circumstances, they didn't spend much time together during Henry's youth. That's for sure. And and what happens then to this um, political clique, this this the, the 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 team that they're allied to, as it were, as the as the Wars of the Roses progresses? Yeah. So everything changes in 1461, and in that year. Edward of March, who was like Henry VI, who was also um, descended from Edward III, he won a decisive victory um, first at Mortimer's Cross and in at the end of March 1461 at the Battle of Towton. And Henry VI is deposed, Edward is proclaimed Edward IV, and for Margaret's family, this is disastrous. Her husband, Henry Stafford, had fought for Henry VI at Towton, so she had a really good reason to be fearful because Jasper Tudor had also um, unsurprisingly fought for Henry VI. Edward decided to be merciful and Henry Stafford was pardoned for his role in um, taking up arms against Edward. Um, but for Jasper Tudor, he was forced to flee. And this, of course, left Margaret's son, Henry, incredibly vulnerable. When... Edward IV's supporter, William Herbert, went to take control of Pembroke Castle, Jasper's stronghold. He found the four-year-old Henry Tudor inside. And the following year, he officially became Henry Tudor's guardian. And Henry was taken to live at Raglan Castle, which was Herbert's stronghold. Um, And, you know, this really signals the beginning of a period of Margaret's life when she was forced to bend her knee to um, a new royal house that were enemies to her own. But she did so remarkably well and she really did do her best to ingratiate herself with her enemies, however painful it may have been for her. Then the Lancastrians come back. Then the Lancastrians come back and... There's this tale that at that time, Margaret takes her son Henry to London to meet Henry VI and that he, the king apparently predicted that one day Henry was going to become king of England and wear the throne. It's definitely a tale that circulated in the Tudor period, unsurprisingly, but actually it's highly unlikely that Henry VI would have said any such thing because at that time he has his own son, so... 
it's not very likely that he would have pinned all his hopes on Henry Tudor. But they did certainly, they did certainly get to meet, uh, Henry Tudor did get to meet Henry VI at that time, who was his uncle. And we know that Henry VI probably would have taken a great interest in him as the son of his dead half-brother, Edmund Tudor. Um, but yes, it, it wasn't destined to last for long, the Lancastrian restoration to the throne. Um, everything changes again in 1471. You don't, I get the feeling that you do not want to make Edward IV angry. No, he could be very merciful and very affable, but yeah, he he wasn't somebody that you wanted to cross and get on the wrong side of. Because he invades, marches south. He's in. He's in. He's match fit, and he gets rid of Henry. And this time, Henry VI has gone for good. Yeah, exactly. He Henry VI is murdered in the Tower of London, and um, as his heir had been killed at the Battle of Tewkesbury. This effectively wipes out all of the main Lancastrian male figureheads and, and heirs to the throne. And Margaret recognises the potential peril that this places her son Henry Tudor in, who by now is 14 years old. And some sources say, and I do think that they're accurate, that Henry was urged to flee abroad for his own safety by his mother because she was so fearful of the potential consequences of Edward's wrath. And so Henry and his uncle Jasper Tudor set sail from Tenby. And um, though they're aiming for France, they actually end up in Brittany as a result of the weather, where they become the hostages of Duke Francis II. So, this, so, so far... He doesn't look like he's picked out to be um, a great sovereign of the future. No. It's not going well. No, absolutely not. And Edward IV looks pretty secure on the throne, right? Yeah. Great warrior king. Yeah, exactly. Great warrior king. He's got two male heirs, surviving male heirs. So the Yorkist dynasty looks pretty solid at this point. And Margaret, at this point, there's nothing to suggest that she had any interest or any intentions for her son for you know for kingship at this point she's all she's concerned about is henry's safety and ensuring that you know that he survives basically and we know that she was working very hard to try and ingratiate herself with edward the fourth in an attempt to try and secure a pardon for henry so that he could return home and um, retain his liberty how old is she now roughly um, at this point, she was, so in the, let's think, okay, at the 1480s, she would have been, she would have been approaching uh, her 40s. Ancient. Ancient at that Ancient. time, yeah. <laughs> Amazing, she's done a lot of living, hasn't she? She has, So yeah. she'd be very wild. I mean, and now are you, uh, the, the, the sources for this period, the source about her life, are you able to get a sense of her as an operator, as a, as a human, her character? The sources for earlier in her life are, are a bit shaky and it is difficult to um, to gauge much of her character at this time. But I would say that she was very politically astute and, you know, she she knew when to when to bow down and when to when to show loyalty in the, the face of adversity. And, you know, she knew when to keep quiet and, and take a back seat and wait for her moment to come. So she wasn't being she wasn't punished by Edward the Fourth particularly. No, she wasn't punished by Edward the Fourth. She was very fortunate, but I think he was certainly certainly to begin with he was very mistrustful of her. 
But as the 1470s progressed, we see that Margaret began to take a more active role in court ceremonial. And this was highly influenced by her fourth husband, Thomas Stanley. Uh, So Henry Stafford, her third husband, he had died shortly after the Battle of um, shortly after the Battle of Tewkesbury, possibly as a result of battle injuries inflicted at Barnet. And Margaret then sort of looked towards making another matrimonial alliance with someone who was closely aligned with Edward IV. And Stanley was an integral member of Edward's household. So he was increasing presence. He, sorry, he was his presence was often required at Edward's court. And Margaret also becomes an increasing presence as a result of this. And we see gradually over time, I think Edward did begin to be to begin to trust her a bit more. Um, we know that she took an active role in the rebellion of Edward's father in 1476. And she also carried the king's youngest daughter, Princess Bridget, her christening in 1480. So suggests that gradually over time, he did begin to trust her a bit more. She'd done well. She did really well, considering where she'd come from. Yeah, absolutely. Her son, though, still languishing in Brittany. Yes. Okay. So then Edward IV dies. Yeah. And that's... That throws everything up into the air and everything into uncertainty because Margaret had done really well with Edward IV in so much that she had managed to persuade him to draft a pardon for Henry Tudor to return home. Um, But then Edward dies and it just throws Henry's future into complete uncertainty because, as we know, within a matter of months of Edward IV's death, Richard the third, oh, sorry, Richard, um, Duke of Gloucester, Edward's brother, had taken over the throne and disinherited Edward's two sons. And Margaret had learnt from this and seen the way that Richard had acted and shown or seen that he was capable of uh, of ruthless behaviour. And it left her certainly feeling very wary and anxious about where the future of her son lay. When do you think she dared to dream that her son might one day ascend to the throne? Um, I think it was in 1483. I think it so was... quite late. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not until then, because, as I said, prior to Edward IV's death, the Yorkist dynasty had seemed really quite solid and secure, and there was no reason to believe that anything was going to go wrong. And then suddenly you get this huge situation of political uncertainty when Edward IV dies and everything that happens with Richard and the disappearance of the princes in the tower. And I think that it's it's only then that Margaret begins to see an opportunity for her son and she's determined to try and take it. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Why, that's fine. Why, though? Because surely a lifetime of war and conflict, like she's got a nice life, it's all going well. Why suddenly risk everything on a roll of the dice? I think she had no reason to believe that Richard III would treat her son well because, as I say, this was a man, whatever your views on Richard III are, this was a man who had a history of violence and she had no way of knowing how he was going to act because... He had shown himself to be, um, to be, like I say, very ruthless. He'd also treated Margaret's husband, Lord Stanley, quite badly as well during his coup to take the throne. And there was, there was just no knowing which way it was going to go with, with him and Henry Tudor. And I think Margaret realised that Ed, um, sorry, Richard's move to become king was um, quite controversial and unpopular and saw suddenly an opportunity that had never really been there before. And I think she kind of decided to roll the dice and take a gamble. And do you think that's coming from her or her son? No, I think that's very much coming from Margaret. Yeah, absolutely. I think it shows some of her desperation as well, because she hadn't seen her son for a very, very long time. And, you know, she barely knew him, really. But I think, you know, she realised that in order for him to be able to come home, perhaps the only way for him to come home at this point was to be King of England. So it's maybe do or die. I mean, we all like seeing our family members, but organising a gigantic rebellion and enthroning one of them is really, that's out there. Yeah. She's going to hold hog there. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. OK, so she's working now against Richard III. Yeah. to bring her son back. Is she involved in that conspiracy, raising troops, planning, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah, she's very, very much involved in all of that. Now, what I will say is that she did realise that because Henry had spent much of his life in exile, he was a completely unknown entity in England. Nobody had any idea who he was. And she also realised that his blood alone wasn't enough to stake a claim to the throne because people were dubious about this sort of this Beaufort lineage. 
And so she realised that he needed someone to help strengthen his claim. And this was where she really saw an opportunity because um, many people believed that Edward IV's eldest daughter, Elizabeth of York, many people classified her as being the rightful heiress to the throne in the aftermath of her brother's disappearance. And um, Margaret saw this as the ideal opportunity to marry her son to Elizabeth of York and thereby obviously unite the, the houses of Lancaster and York and also to um, hopefully bring an end to, to years of war and bloodshed. And she saw this also as a way of being able to curry valuable support. And she began plotting with Elizabeth's mother, Elizabeth Woodville, who was at this time living in penury in Sanctuary at Westminster Abbey. And the two women, using their physician, Dr Lewis, as an intermediary, began to plot together. And Margaret was able to draw on the support of possibly... um, uh, Sorry... She was able to draw on the support of the Duke of Buckingham, who had been one of Richard's very close allies, but had somehow become disaffected. And they began planning this rebellion, which is known as the Buckingham Rebellion, and um, are able to draw on support from some of Edward IV's former supporters also. And we know that Margaret was sending her members of her household across the channel to Henry Tudor, sending him money and messages of encouragement and support and basically telling him what to do and telling him that he needed to head this invasion force over to England. Meanwhile, though, will he get away from Britain? Is he still a hostage or has he sorted that situation out? So by this time, um, no, by this time he was able to court the support and the favour of Francis II, who agreed to, to back him and to lend him money and troops. And Perfect. that's exactly what he does. Perfect. That's what that's what princes of the royal blood. That's what exiled princes of the royal blood are for. Yeah, exactly. Perfect for exactly. Francis. Little pawns they can move around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so yeah. then. So. Okay, so what happens now with the Buckingham Revolt? So what happens is, unfortunately, everything goes badly wrong. Uh, Richard III found out about it quite early on. Um, Henry Tudor set sail from Brittany. But when he arrives on the English coast, he the people there try to persuade him that the that Buckingham has been successful and that Richard's dead. Um, but he's very wary and cautious, and he has good reason to be so because actually, as I say, everything went wrong. The rebellion was a dismal failure. Buckingham was captured and executed, and Henry Tudor turns round and returns to Brittany. But for Margaret, sadly, there's nowhere to go. And she's forced to sit and wait for the consequences of her plotting. Right, exactly. She's been caught red-handed. She's been caught red-handed and she had every reason to be fearful for her life. But actually, it was Richard's own vulnerability that ended up saving her because Richard realised that he couldn't afford to risk alienating Margaret's husband, Lord Stanley, by ordering the execution of his wife. So Stanley was too powerful for for him to risk offending him too deeply. So Margaret was spared the death penalty, but that didn't mean that she was going to go unpunished. And instead, Richard ordered that all of her lands were to be confiscated from her. And in some ways, I think that this would have been a punishment worse 
than death for Margaret because she was always really, really passionate about her lands and she took a great interest and great personal care in their administration. So I think to have them taken away from her would have come as a huge blow for her. Um, And she was also held under house imprisonment under the custodianship of her husband and banned from communicating with her son. And but that's that this period doesn't last long then. No. No, and Margaret has absolutely no intention of forgoing contact with her son and actually she continued to plot on Henry's behalf because the Buckingham rebellion had shown that there were quite a few people in the country who were really disaffected with Richard and who were prepared to rise against him. And at some point, it's clear that she began plotting with her husband to bring about Henry's return. And by 1485, by the summer of 1485, Henry is ready to sail for England once more. And again, we know that Margaret had been sending him messages of um, support and had also been sending him money. And on the 1st of August, 1485, Henry landed at Milford Haven. And Richard III marches out to meet him, saying this is going to be the greatest battle of all time, crush my enemies once and for all. Yeah, absolutely. And he had every reason to be confident because he was by far the most experienced in military terms. I think lots of people forget that Henry Tudor had never fought a battle. He doesn't sound like he's done much in his life, Henry Tudor. No, he hasn't. Poor man. He's just lived in penury and uh, in exile for most of his life. Yeah, in Brittany uh, and in France a bit as well. And he... I think he didn't really have much reason to feel confident when he landed because men were not rallying to his banner in the sorts of numbers that he had hoped for. And by the time that he reaches Leicestershire, you know, he's he's really sort of um, panicking a bit and really anxious and hoping that his stepfather, Lord Stanley, is going to lend him the support that he very much needs. Uh, but this time, yeah, at this point, Richard's feeling pretty confident and with good cause because his army is by far the bigger and better prepared. And at this stage, um, our hero is 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 not involved. She's she's uh, what what's she doing? It's really frustrating because we don't know for sure because there aren't any sources that tell us exactly what she's doing. But I can say that it would have undoubtedly been a very anxious time for her. She, Margaret took a huge interest in every aspect of Henry's life. And we do know that she owned a book of hours which had come to her from her mother. And she used it to record all of the important events in her life. And uh, we do know that she took care to record the date on which Henry landed at Milford Haven. So it's clear that she is aware of his movements and trying to keep tabs on him as far as she possibly can. Um, but And she must have been trying to draw up support. I mean, she knew everyone. Yeah. She was trying to draw up support. Yeah, her. yeah. This absolutely. is still an era in which great aristocrats would have had sort of retainers that sort of well, private armies almost. That yeah, have, yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, we know that Margaret's members of Margaret's family and close associates of hers were lending their support to Henry and fighting by his side. So undoubtedly, Margaret would have been busy drumming up support for him and doing all that she could to try and encourage people to 
rally to Henry's banner. That might have made a difference in the decisive battle, because it's a confused old thing, Bosworth, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's it's very confused. Um, there aren't, There's not very much detail about Bosworth because there aren't any contemporary accounts. Um, but we do know that it was over within about two hours. And though the odds had been very much stacked in Richard's favour, somehow... Some, yeah, somehow it's like a miracle. Henry manages to win the battle and Richard is cut down and killed. And um, a contemporary chronicler posed a really interesting question, which I really feel might have reflected Margaret's own feelings on it, um, which was, you know, was it was basically along the lines of, um, you know, was this luck? Surely, actually, it must have been God's judgment and divine intervention. And I think that that's very much the way that Margaret would have seen it. Well, that could also have been her intervention because d- there was people switching sides at the last minute and waiting to see. I mean, yeah, that's exactly. So, yeah, that's exactly what um, what her husband Stanley does and his brother William Stanley. And I think they d- they'd certainly given Henry some assurance of their support but they wait on the sidelines not committing to either side and then just as you know the battle is coming to a real crux William Stanley um, Margaret's brother-in-law rides in with his men and comes to Henry's aid and saves the day supposedly. I think her fingerprints are all over this battle. Yeah very much so I agree. And I mean, it's so fascinating. These are Stanleys who are Edward the Fourth. These are these are like two of the like stalwarts of the House of York who intervene for Henry and Lancaster at this final battle. It's an extraordinary. So, but is, yeah. and therefore, is Margaret that key? Is she the link between the the remnants of the House of Lancaster and the and the the dis, the, the disenchanted Yorkists? Yeah, I think you could see her that way. I think um, the Stanleys are really slippery characters and even Edward IV never really fully trusted them because they had this tendency to kind of switch sides during the Wars of the Roses or they'd have one brother on one side and one on the other. Um, and I, I think I think by 1483, following the Buckingham Rebellion, they had also kind of become aware that yeah, there was this great unpopularity towards Richard III. And I think Margaret probably really, really played on that and was able to to persuade her husband to support her son. And I think he was probably he probably knew that the rewards would be quite great for him if Henry were to succeed. So Henry wins the battle. What does Stanley get? Stanley does quite well out of it. He gets an earldom, so he becomes Earl of Derby, which is, you know, yeah, that's quite quite nice for him. Um, and then Margaret becomes the Queen's mother. King's mother. Uh, Margaret, Margaret becomes the King's mother. She does, yeah. She becomes the King's mother. All her lands back, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, actually, much more than that, because in the first Parliament of Henry's reign, she's declared a femme sole, um, or a sole person, which gives her automatically sole control over all of her own lands, which gives her complete financial independence from Stanley, um, which I think is a huge, huge thing for her. But there's strangely, there's no evidence that he kind of resented this or was unhappy about this. And they seem to have still got along rather well with each other. But yeah. And then how long did she go on living? She went on living until 1509 
Um, so she actually died after her son. So she, well, she died a couple of months after her son. So she witnessed the entirety of his reign and the very first few weeks of the reign of her grandson, Henry VIII, who, of course, the Tudor dynasty's most famous king. That's amazing. Yeah. And is she active, do we think, during Henry VII's reign? She's so active during this time. This is the period of her life when we know the most about her um, because we've got quite a complete set of accounts um, from her during this time. So we know what she was spending her money on. We know where she was going, who she was going there with. Um, and we know kind of who, who she was communicating with. And um, we know that she she was almost a constant presence at Henry VII's court for probably the first decade of his reign. And we know that mother and son were really, really very close to one another. At some of the royal palaces, their apartments even interlinked. So they were always in very close proximity. They're quite close in age. Yeah, exactly. The same generation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Quite close in age. Um, We know even that Henry entrusted Margaret with the role of his unofficial lieutenant in the Midlands. And it was there that she began to establish um, her authority and assert um, and um, yeah, sorry assert her authority as the king's mother in that region um, she began to administer justice on Henry's behalf there as well uh, this was all done from her Northamptonshire palace of Collie Weston where she had among other buildings she had a counting house and a jail built there um, and with the support of her council she began hearing and deputising on all sorts of cases, including, very bizarrely, one against a man who was accused of the baptism of a cat. So, <laughs> Well, what a, what a, I imagine she'd seen it all in her life. Exactly, she so did. So that did not come as a particular surprise. No. Well, thank you so much for bringing the life of this absolutely remarkable uh, woman to my attention. Thank you. And to the audiences. The book is called? Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort, Tudor Matriarch. Nicola, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Hi, everybody. Just a quick message at the end of this podcast. I'm currently sheltering in a small, windswept building on a piece of rock in the Bristol Channel called Lundy. I'm here to make a podcast. I'm here enduring weather that, frankly, is apocalyptic because I... I want to get some great podcast material for you guys. In return, I've got a little tiny favour to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it, if you could give it a review, I really appreciate that. Then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favour. Then more people will listen to the podcast, we can do more and more ambitious things, and I can spend more of my time getting pummeled. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.